class clown here. I'm here to open up God's Word with you. My name's Tom. You're welcome if you're visiting with us. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, we have lots of extras. We give them away. And for some of you, this will be a very new experience. Matter of fact, I heard a, a very funny story. Some friends here at church said that they were talking to someone who, who went to church with one of her family members, and um, the first time she saw people actually reading the Bible and taking notes, she was like, what? What are you, a bunch of minions? Like, like we just sit there like little robots. But, but more recently, she's like, wow, that, that was a really interesting sermon. So I hope that if you're not used to reading the Bible, that you will begin to realize that the Bible's not some weird old-fashioned book, but it's the living Word of God, and it's life-changing. And if you'll just open your heart to receive it, it's, it's, it's glorious what it can accomplish. So we're reading through the Gospel of Mark. And one of the things that I'm really encouraged by is many of you are learning how to read the Bible. That's so important to learn how to read the Bible. The Bible's not just for some really ex- extremely smart theologians, but, but we learn to read it verse by verse, straight through, book by book, and then learn how to apply it to our lives. And it really encourages me to see Many of you taking the word and going, hey, I can teach the Bible. I can have small groups. We can read the Bible at home. It's not something we only have to do in church. So we are in Mark chapter 12. We're going through this series, and I've called it Clarifying Jesus, because the way that Mark frames his gospel is to gradually unfold who is Jesus really, because they couldn't figure it out. Who is this guy? But once they discover who he is, the Messiah, then he has to explain what does it mean to commit to the journey, like in the Gospel of Mark, you join him on the way. You become a follower. You believe, you repent, you're forgiven. But then Jesus begins to teach us what it means to be a disciple. So the last few weeks we've been in the week of what we call Palm Sunday, or actually Passion Week. So from Mark 11 all the way to the rest of the book, it's only one week in the life of Jesus, which shows us that the Gospels are not biographies of Jesus. Someone once said they're Stories of the Passion Week with long introductions. So this last week is really important in the life of Christ. And and what Mark is showing us is a lot of the conflicts that Jesus has. So when he comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, we often say that he cleansed the temple as though he was restoring it. But we learned a couple weeks ago that he wasn't cleansing the temple. He was closing the temple. He was basically saying the temple's temporary. This thing's about to be done because I'm going to be the way to God, and, and I'm going to be the prayer and the desire of all the nations. Last week, we saw that one by one, Jesus had a continuous artillery bombing of religious leaders who were trying to trip him up, and so they would come and try to trap him in a question, and Jesus would always flip it around and stump them. So remember, they go, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus would go, go get one of those coins. Whose image is on that? They said, oh, it's that Caesar's image. He goes, good, give to Caesar what Caesar's. If his image is on it, give it to him. He says, but render to God the things that are God's, which means whose image is on you? It's, it's God's. And so we learn that knowing Jesus well should lead to surrender to his will. So just like a good episode of a TV show, we had to stop. So we're going to pick up right now with the next group that's going to approach Jesus. So join me in verse 18. And we'll see that this time it's a group called the Sadducees. In verse 13, it was the Pharisees. It says, some Sadducees, 
who say there's no resurrection, came to him and began questioning him. Now again, learning the background of the Bible makes it much more interesting and understandable. If you were to get a Bible dictionary, just, just go online and say, who are the Sadducees? You would find that during the time between when the Old Testament ended, when Micah or Malachi wrote his last book, there was a period of 400 years that Jewishness did not cease to exist. They still had a land, but it was under occupation by the Greeks. And during that time, two groups of leaders kind of came to the top. They were called the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And probably both of them started off with good motives. The Pharisees were watching their Hebrew friends just compromise and worship Greek gods and so forth. So, so they were the separate ones. But they gradually came, became leaders. But the Sadducees was a separate group. There weren't as many Sadducees, but by the time Jesus came, the Sadducees were the most powerful because they had the money and they had the priesthood. So in the Old Testament, God was supposed to appoint the priests. But because they were under Greek and Roman rule, the Greeks and Romans let them bid for the priesthood. So the Sadducees having the cash, they ran the temple and they paid and, and bought the priesthood. Now, the Sadducees held very different religious beliefs from the Pharisees. The Sadducees had a very thin Bible. The one advantage would be it would be easy to bring your Bible to church because the Sadducees' Bible only had five books. The only scripture that they believed was the Word of God was Genesis to Deuteronomy, the five books of Moses. That's it. Throughout the history of the church, there have been people who tried to carve up the Bible and just pick portions of it. There's in the, in the history of Christianity, there was what's called a truncated canon of Marcion. He, he sort of said, no, these are the only books. So knowing this, the Pharisees' Bible was very little, right? Just Genesis to Deuteronomy. But even though they had that, they also had a very secular mindset of how to interpret the Bible. So even though the Bible described miracles and angels and things like that, they didn't believe it. So they were totally secular. It's weird, right? They're like, Oh, yeah, we believe in God. We only believe this part of the Bible. But they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection. It's like, well, what do you believe? So knowing that they didn't believe in the resurrection, for them to come and even ask Jesus questions about the resurrection under the guise that we believe in it too, but we're going to trap him, is such a sham of hypocrisy. So Mark introduces us. They came to Jesus. Even though they don't believe there's a resurrection, they want to try to trick Jesus. So verse 19 says, Teacher, Moses wrote for us a law that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should take the wife and raise up offspring to his brother. Now, in our culture, we're going, wait, what? Somebody sleeps, my brother sleeps with my wife, I'll beat him. No, no, no. This is, this is very specific. This is what was called the leveret marriage. And this was God's idea. And it was very, very specific. It was God's desire that each of the 12 tribes of Israel and the families within those 12 tribes would keep the inheritance within the family and they would pass on the property and the inheritance to the next generation. So it was a very painful thing if a woman had no son and a father was unable 
to pass on the inheritance. So if a man died and, and, and his wife was young enough to still have children, the Leveret marriage said that the, the, the brother, if he had a brother, would go in with his widow or his brother's widow and he would attempt for her to have a child. And that child would completely be the sole heir of that property and that thing. It wasn't like the, quote, the blood father would go, that's half mine. This was very serious to God. There's a story in Genesis 39 of a man who tried doing this. He wanted the pleasure. The Bible says he would make sure that she wouldn't get pregnant, though, right? And it says, and this displeased the Lord, and he killed him, right? So it wasn't anything to mess around with. It was just a way of continuing the line within the family. So they're like, so geez, let, let, let's just take a scenario. Now, they probably got this idea. In the Apocrypha, there is a story about a woman who had seven husbands, right? So, verse 20, there were seven brothers, and the first one took a wife, and he died, leaving no offspring. Second one took her, and he died, leaving no offspring. Third, likewise. And so, all seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. Now notice their hypocrisy because they don't even believe in the resurrection, but they say to Jesus, so Jesus, in the resurrection, uh, help us understand this. Verse 23, in the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had her as a wife. And again, in their mind, they're like, we got him here. It's the whole idea of a resurrection, it's ridiculous. Like, who's going to sort through that ball of... Wax, you know, who, who, I don't know, maybe the first one, I'm not sure, the prettiest one, the youngest one, I don't know, right? And Jesus, knowing that they don't even believe in the resurrection, he says to them in verse 24, is this not the reason you are mistaken? Now notice that he does this in the form of a question. He could have easily said, you're mistaken. But he asks a question, is not this the reason that you're mistaken? that you don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. Now, if I were to put that into a statement, it would be like this. Hey, you don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. You're mistaken. What's really interesting about this word mistaken, it comes from a, a word in Greek that's it's, it, it's called planao. We get the word planet from that because it means to be wandering. So originally before people understood that planets were very fixed and orderly, they thought that planets just wandered aimlessly through space. So originally a planet was just this, you know, terrestrial thing that just wandered through space. So to be planao would be to be led into error, to be deceived. And so Jesus goes, you guys, you are way off base. Your ball's out in the weeds. You don't get it, right? Now, Notice that he says there's two things you don't understand. One, you don't understand the scriptures. And secondly, you don't understand the power of God. In other words, you can't even imagine that someone whose dead body is put in the ground, that God is strong enough to pull it back out of the grave, right? But I want you to think about this. At the end of verse 27, he says it again. You are greatly mistaken. And what I want you to think about is, 
According to the Bible, that anybody who does not believe the words of God, follow the scriptures as your final authority of faith and practice. According to Jesus, you're wrong. You're mistaken, and you're going to reap the fruit of making this terrible decision of disbelieving and disobeying the Bible. But I think we can learn some things from Jesus here. Number one, if you believe that the Bible's true, right, and so your friend says, well, I don't believe Jesus is the only way, right, in your mind, you're going, okay, I think they're mistaken, right? If they say, oh, I don't believe Jesus is coming again, well, if you believe the Bible, they're mistaken. But how do you engage with people who don't believe, don't understand, and disobey the Bible? Well, one of the things that the Bible's very clear on is that we must not argue. Write down this passage. 2 Timothy 2, verses 20 through 24 says this. The servant of the Lord must not quarrel and argue, but gently correct those who are in opposition. So let me give you a scenario. Your, your son comes home from college and he goes, I don't believe the Bible anymore. I think we completely evolved and there's no God. Now, you could say to him, you're greatly mistaken. But that's not going to accomplish anything. So your neighbor says, I think all religions go to heaven. Well, you don't want to say to them, you're greatly mistaken. You're stupid. You don't get it, right? That's, that, that's wasteful. Jesus does this with these leaders because they are expected to know the Bible and to be the authority. So there were times that Jesus was very tender and there was times that he used a two-by-four. These guys needed a two-by-four. But what I want you to think about is we are trying to bring people to the truth, right? And we, first of all, have to posture ourselves as we are not the source of truth. It's not because I said it, I know more than you. We are simply those who have been graciously allowed by God to understand the truth. So most of us have somebody we love who doesn't believe this book. Some of you are here this morning probably. You're not sure you're in on this. The Bible says we should gently correct them with hope that God will grant them repentance and they will come to the knowledge of the truth and they will escape from the snare of the devil, coming to their senses, okay? So think about our mission. We're surrounded by people who do not believe that this is the word of God. And they're constantly sharing their views. I think it's okay to live together without being married. I think you can choose your gender. I think that abortion is not wrong. I think that all religions are okay. I think if you think Christianity is okay, you should be put in jail because you're hateful, right? So how do I engage with them? Well, number one, notice that Jesus tethers it with Scripture. He says, you don't understand the Scriptures. Because there are two groups of people in this world who are greatly mistaken. The first group are those that have no scripture. So we have to bear that in mind. Of the 7 billion people on the earth, a lot of them don't even have the Bible. But that does not make them innocent. Romans chapter 1 says, even though they know God through creation, they worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. They've exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they're without excuse. So people who die without ever hearing the Bible are still condemned because they have turned away from natural revelation. But the fact is, we don't live among those people. We love among people who have access to this book. 
We live among people who read this book. We live around people who have views of this book, okay? And so we have to engage them with that in mind, okay? So for example, the Bible says false teachers will twist the scriptures to their own destruction. But we must learn to rightly divide the word of truth. As Christians, we must learn to read it and carefully interact with other people's opinions and then say, here's what I think the Bible teaches. So, scenario. Someone calls me from the Roman Catholic faith. I've had this happen. Hey, my, my cousin died. Would you pray for them? Well, I don't think that the Bible teaches that we should pray for the dead. It's not in there. Would you pray for them to get out of purgatory? It's not in our Bible. So I don't say, is not this the reason that you are greatly mistaken? You don't understand. No, I say, listen, I sympathize with, with, with your request, but as a Christian, I believe that the word of God is the final source of our authority, not tradition, not man's ideas, but the Bible. And because the Bible teaches us to pray for those who are still alive, let me pray for you, Okay. So we gently come alongside. We don't say to our kids, you idiot, after all I've done for you, I sent you to Christian school, and I taught you this, and this is what you do, you disbelieve me. No, we come humbly and we say, listen, I want to plead with you. I want to plead with you to understand why we hold these things about Scripture. Which, by the way, I don't want you to miss this. Next Sunday at 9.15, I expect this room to be very empty and that room to be really full because we're having a crosstalk by Dr. Mac Mikulak, who's actually Jeremy's dad, who's the head of youth and children's, well, youth ministry at Cairn University. But he is an expert in, in, in youth culture technology, particularly. So his, his message is going to be passing the most precious things to our most precious ones. Learn how parenting, youth culture, and technology has changed and how we can transfer values to the next generation. I, I learned this this week. I thought it was going to be primarily if you have teenagers. It's actually not. It's going to be for anybody who has children or teens. Mom came up to me right afterward. She said, is it going to be taped because I can't be there? Yes, it's going to be taped. Number two, the other mom said to me, listen, I have no clue what to do here with the cell phone and all this stuff. So be in prayer because it's not going to be a one and done. After I heard that, all my kids, you know, love the Lord, and they all want to be pastors and missionaries, right? But, but it's some good, solid, biblical advice because my burden is I believe that this particular church has a whole lot of first-generation parents. You're the first generation in your family to be Christians, so you don't have any real Christian role models to go, what does it look like? I guess I just spank my kids a lot and tell them to sit down because we're reading from Isaiah. I can, trust me, it does not work. I've tried that. Okay, so pray about that and hopefully you'll be able to join us. But let's look at how Jesus engages with these people because he says something really fascinating that we all would like to know about. Jesus says in verse 23, I'm sorry, in verse 24, isn't this the reason you're mistaken? You don't understand the scriptures. Now look at verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, okay? So right now, Jesus isn't even going to debate that. He doesn't go, uh, uh, you know, he goes, Listen, let me tell you something. When they rise, not if they rise, when they rise from the dead, this is what he says. They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like angels 
in heaven. Now that verse is loaded. And I want to take a few moments for you to think about this. Number one, we were never designed by God to float around forever in heaven like spirits. We were made in the image of God with physical bodies, with flesh and bones to eat, to fellowship, to walk around on this planet with our feet on the ground. And that's how we're going to spend eternity. If you die before the return of Christ, you're absent from the body and presence of the Lord. Your soul's with the Lord, but that's a place of rest and joy. But that's not the end. The end is when we rise from the dead in physical bodies and God comes to earth. And man, it's going to be good. The Bible says there will be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death. The former things were all passed away. It's going to be unspeakable joy. I guarantee you, if you're there, you won't be bored for a minute. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, God in the days to come will make known to us the, the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness. Day by day, we'll never go, already saw that one. It's going to be glory. We're going to have unspeakable joy. It's going to be awesome. But we're not going to be little angelic beings with little wings. Some of you are already growing your little halo. Stop it. We are people, humans in the image of God. So I don't want you to misunderstand this. When Jesus says we are like angels in heaven, he doesn't say completely like angels in heaven. There are many ways where we're very different from angels in heaven. Angels in heaven are spirits. We are going to be embodied humans. All right? Well, then what does he mean here? He says they don't marry or are given in marriage. That's the thing about angels that we're parallel with, okay? Angels don't have kids. Angels don't reproduce. Some of you are like, well, my parents call me angel. I'm like, no, stop. That's different, okay? So I've often said about this verse. Have you ever thought about this? How can the same verse bring some people unspeakable joy and others unspeakable sadness, right? You're like, what do you mean? Well, some people who are in a difficult marriage are going, thank God Almighty, I'm going to be free at last, right? But other people, I'm not in a difficult marriage. I, I can't even imagine this. I can't imagine not sneaking behind the bar and going, come on, honey, just give me a kiss, right? I don't understand how we will not have this dimension so there's some mystery to what our relationships will be like in heaven, right? There's not, we don't know everything. The Bible says now we're the children of God, but it has not yet been revealed what we will be, but when we see him, we will be like him. So here's a couple things you can mark down for sure. You can know for sure that you will have a resurrected, glorious body that's conformed to the image of Jesus. Now, I don't know exactly what that looks like. Philippians chapter three says this, we are waiting eagerly for the return of Christ who will transform our body into conformity with his body. Now, chase that a little bit. You're like, okay, so are we all going to be 33 and a half year old Jewish people? I'm going to walk up and say, hey, Sean. And the person's going to go, it's not Sean, it's Jennifer. I'm like, we all look alike. How am I going to? So I don't think we're all going to look exactly like one another. The Bible says, just as we have the image of Adam, we shall also bear the image of Christ. So somehow we'll have glorious bodies. I mean, I'm, I'm answering questions that you'll ask, right? Well, what about an unborn baby who's a, aborted? Am I going to be like, hey, look at little shorty there. Glad to have you in heaven. I don't know. I think somehow there's some mystery, but we can have confidence, right? You will recognize your loved ones. Otherwise, why would the Bible say 
Don't sorrow without hope because one day you will be raised with Christ and we will forever be with the Lord. So listen, the heart and soul of the Christian faith is about the hope of the resurrection, right? It's bigger than, I just can't wait to go to heaven. Stop that. Christians don't go to heaven forever. We're resurrected from the dead and we live forever on earth with Jesus. That's called the hope of the resurrection. We're not going to go to heaven. You just go there temporarily if you die before Jesus comes back. Heaven's coming here. The Bible says the tabernacle of God is going to be on earth in a new heaven and a new earth. And so this is what should drive me as I think about, dear God, dear God, don't ever let one of my children or grandchildren die. But if they do, in the wash of tears, when I'm laid out on the floor in sorrow and agony, it will not be without the hope of the resurrection, that there is a sure promise from God. Jesus said, the time is coming when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and everyone's coming out of the grave. And again, we could have all kinds of questions. Well, what if I was cremated? What if I was eaten by sharks, and I've traded arms with Iran, and my arms in the Persian Gulf? Stop worrying about that. Jesus is not going to do a Mr. Potato Head. Oop, wrong ear on wrong person. He is powerful. He is perfect. And he will be able to bring us out of the grave with a new body. But there's one more thing I want you to think about. Don't forget, there's going to be a whole generation that never dies, right? So not every Christian is going to be resurrected. Because some of us are going to still be alive. And the Bible didn't tell us what would happen in the Old Testament. But the New Testament tells us. It says, I tell you a mystery. We're not all going to be asleep. We're not all going to be dead. If Jesus comes right now, it says this. The dead shall be raised, but then it says, we who are alive, our corruptible body will be swallowed up by an incorruptible body. We shall be gloriously changed, even us who are still alive. And I, anybody else with me? I don't mind passing on death. I'm good on that. I'll, I'll turn my ticket in. Somebody else could take it. I'll be greatly blessed if Jesus comes back and I don't have to face that last enemy death. But don't think that you're going to just have a few cosmetic touch-ups. You're like, how can you improve on this? You and I are going to be gloriously transformed. And the greatest thing is it's not just going to be external, it's going to be internal. Can you imagine what it's going to be like? No more sorrow. You know what's the number one source of sorrow? Sin. No more pain. No more suffering. The former things are all passed away. All kinds of questions. Well, how can I be happy if, if one of my loved ones isn't with me? I don't know, but I believe God. And if God says there's no more sorrow, I don't know what he's going to do, but I trust him. And I understand the scriptures and the power of God. And so I hope the resurrection is something that you realize this is central to the Christian faith. Otherwise, Paul goes, are we fools? What are we doing? Why turn away from sin? Why try to do what's right? Why endure persecution? Why are Christians being killed all over, all over the world? The Bible says if the dead are not raised, then why not eat, drink, and be merry, and tomorrow we die? But because of the truth of the resurrection, the Bible says we should be steadfast. You should get on that road and follow Jesus, unmovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord because your labor is not in vain. So I go, get him, Jesus. Thank you. That's great. And our goal is not to win the fight with our cousin and say, see, you're wrong. Our goal is to bring them to Christ and to pray. Listen, I'm going to tell you what's going to unleash a great revival. I'm believing God to save many souls. It's not just because we're out there telling our friends about Jesus. We just need to talk to more people about God. 
I believe with all my heart, and you read it in the book of Acts, the power of God falls when we start talking to God about people. When we become praying, believing, passionate people who are pleading with God for souls. That's what I do. I plead with God that when I stand in this pulpit, that his power will be manifested in my weakness and that the word of God will go forth and people will be awakened from the dead. But it doesn't just have to happen in this building. It can happen in in a bar. It can happen in your basement. It can happen at work. It can happen in the bedroom as you're sharing the word of God with children. The word of God is powerful. And we simply say, hey, here's what the Bible says. And if they go, well, I don't think, I think that. Well, this is what the Bible says with hope that God's word will speak life into them. But now we have another guy. Let's move to this next one. Now, this next guy is very unusual because he's the only religious leader that we see in, in Mark that's not antagonistic. He's actually sympathetic to Jesus. Look at verse 28. One of the scribes came and he heard them argue on this. And recognizing that Jesus had answered them well, He asked Jesus, which commandment is the foremost of all? And Jesus answered, and by the way, there's extra biblical literature. A lot of the scribes and Pharisees were arguing about that. They all had different views. Jesus goes, let me weigh in on this. The foremost is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. I'm sorry, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, number one, I can assure you this. There wasn't a Jew standing there who's like, I forgot about that verse. That verse is the heart and soul of Judaism, the first part of that verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. If you go to a synagogue this Friday night, they're going to stand up and they're going to quote that verse. The first word here in Hebrew is Shema. They call this the great Shema. They're going to stand up together and go, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. If you go to their house, they have a little Azusa nailed to the door because God says, you should write this on your doorpost. This is the heart and soul of the Jewish faith. So when Jesus says, you shall love God with your heart, soul, but he adds something with your strength and with your mind in another passage, he's teaching us that there's this holistic devotion to God, full surrender, but then he says, And no one had done this previously. He connects it with the next one, which is love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. So Jesus weaves these two together. And here's a problem we have in America. There's plenty of people who love God. They just hate people, right? And God's gone, there is no such thing. How can you love God whom you can't see if you hate people who you see? And so Jesus is showing us here that there's a correlation between loving God and loving others. But before we look at this guy's response, I have a question. How do you do that? First of all, we'd all be thrown out of the building as liars if we go, oh, I already do that. (laughs) Everything I do, I love God from the moment I get up, if I pick up a piece of trash off the ground, it's because I love God, right? How do you do that? But I think there's a question you've got to ask before that. Why would I do that? Right? Heart and motivation matter. So I want you to think about this. 
is God like the dad in Matilda? Have you ever seen that weird but kind of humorous play, show, you know, play on terrible parenting? Matilda asks her father, well, why should I do that? He goes, because I'm big and you're little and there's nothing you can do about it. Is that God? Is he coming down in our grill and going, I'm going to tell you one thing. You better love me with all you got or you're going down there, right? Is, is this driven by fear? Is this driven by, ah, I hope I do enough. Man, if that's what you come away with, you're missing the whole point. The Bible makes it very clear. There's only one reason, one motive why we should love God. It's because he first loved us. So if you want to fall in love with God, don't try harder to please him. Trust more at Calvary. Stay at the foot of the cross and remind yourself, while I was a sinner and ungodly and an enemy, Christ died for me. Christ loved me and gave himself for me. And if he loved me that much, that motivates me. That's grace. He would take a loser like me and forgive me and indwell me and promise to keep me to the end and come back for me and welcome into his heavenly kingdom and nothing can separate me from his love. That drives me. If you hear people say, well, what do you believe in once saved, always saved? I don't believe that because everybody would just go out and sin like a sailor. I'm like, you don't get it. If you come under the grips of the grace of God at Calvary and you understand that Jesus bore hell for you and he poured out his blood so that you don't have to go to hell, if your takeaway from that is, oh, that sounds like fun, I can get free hell insurance, go away, you're lost and godless. But if at the foot of the cross you go, Lord Jesus, you loved me and died for me, what is that going to look like for me to live for you? What is that going to look like? You ask me to love my wife and that's difficult? Well, Jesus, you loved me when that was difficult. And so I trust that we want to be a church full of people who aren't loving God because we have to. We're loving Jesus because of his love for us. Pray to God that that will be your driving motivation. Paul didn't go through what he went through because he was tougher than the other guys. He said, the love of Christ compels me. This is how Paul lived his life. He said, I've been crucified with Christ, but I still live, but it's not me, it's Christ living in me. But here's how I live day by day. I live by faith in the Son of God. What Son of God? The Son of God, he said, Galatians 2.20, who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not just, oh, this is cute, let's tell the children, Jesus loves you, this I know. I want you to tell me that because the devil's telling me an alternate narrative. My conscience is telling me an alternate narrative. You're a loser, Tom. People knew what you thought if people see the way your motives, and I have to go back and say, but Jesus loves me. And if he be for me, who can be against me? And if I'm struggling and I feel God's a million miles away, I can remind myself, if he didn't spare his own son, how will he not freely give me all things? So may God help us to want to love Jesus, but not because we want to earn something, but because we've already been loved by him. Jesus loves you. And he invites you to come fully and freely. And if you've already come, you're forgiven. You're free. And now, when you get up in the morning, it's not, well, I got to do my devotions and pray because that's what the Bible says. It's like, Lord Jesus, what a privilege that I could talk to you, that I could, could, I could come and say, Lord, what do you want me to do today? How can I please you? 
How do you want me to react here? And so we learn to love God, and then he's going to go, well, here's one way you could do it. Now start loving others. Freely you receive, freely also give. Go home and love that difficult child. Love that difficult spouse. Love that difficult coworker. Love your enemies. Pray for your country. Pray for people. Share your faith with them, even if they spit on you. Reach out in love. Turn away from sin, not because you have to, but because you want to, because you don't want to slap Jesus in the face. But I really like Jesus' response to this guy because the, the, the guy, he's insightful. He goes, Jesus, you're right. You've, you've truly stated, verse 32, that there's only one God and beside him there's no one else. And to love him with all your heart and with all your strength and love and your neighbor as yourself, that's better than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's way better than going, I'm going to sin like a sailor and then I'm going to confession. Repeat 10x. To love God and to start to obey him is spot on the greatest thing we could do, but only because he loved me and he'll help me. Jesus never asks you to do anything that he won't enable us to do. But then Jesus said something that's really profound, and I, and I sure wish I could have been there to, to, to ask a couple more questions. Jesus saw that he answered intelligently, and he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Man, I would have loved to have been there and said, Jesus, what, what do you mean? I would have loved to have been inside that guy's brain and gone, what did he think? Right? Imagine somebody saying to you, you're not far. Years ago, I was preaching at Edgley. Our Edgley folks here, some lady put a note in the offering. She said, keep preaching, Pastor Tom. You've almost come to the truth. I said, we need to talk, Right? So I got together with her and her friend, and they went to tell me how they don't believe the Bible anymore, but she Christs herself, and she thinks that some of the words of Jesus are contradictory. And I gently said, do you realize 1 Timothy 6 says, if any man disagrees with the sound words of Jesus and the doctrine that leads to godliness, he knows nothing but is proud? I said, the Bible calls you on the border of being a heretic. So I beg you to come back under the authority of Jesus and the teachings of the Bible. But for somebody to say to you, you know, you're almost on your way to heaven. What do you do with that, right? On the basis of that, I sometimes say that to people. I'll interact with somebody and I'll go, wow, you're off base on some things, but, but, but you're not a hard-hearted, stubborn sinner going, don't confuse me with the facts, right? But I can tell you this. These aren't horseshoes and hand grenades. You're either in or out. And it is sad to think that the gates of hell have welcomed many people who were not far from the kingdom of God. But when it came down to the hour of decision, they backed off. Well, how could he be close? Because he was acknowledging the central truths. So I assume if Jesus took him aside for a sidebar, he said, here's what you lack, man. You just need to repent of your sin now. And trust in me, right? And so if you're here this morning, you could be going to church your whole life. You'd be a pretty good person compared to others. But if you don't repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're close, but you're not in. There comes a time, and you don't even need to know when you did it. You just need to know that you did it. And if you're not sure that you ever did it, if I was you, I would do it. Where the Bible says you pass from death to life. You take the plunge, you join the team, you give your life to Christ, you surrender and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And from that day on, 
you're not far from the kingdom of God, you're in. And the rest of our lives, we live with this grounded assurance, I am forgiven. And I don't try to hope to get to heaven. I want to live for Christ because I'm going to heaven. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. But Jesus goes, I've got one now. This is almost comical. So all the leaders are like, I'll get him. Eh, that didn't work. I got this. Oop, that didn't work. Let me move away. I got That didn't work. And finally they're like, never mind. And Jesus is like, I got one. Because I'm still trying to clarify who I am. They had come to the point where many of them were calling him the son of David, okay? Why are we calling Jesus the son of David? David lived a long time before Jesus. Well, son of was used of your descendants, right? But the Jews knew this, that in the Old Testament, God told to David, one of your descendants is going to reign over the house of Israel. So they began to realize that there's going to be this one guy, one of David's kids, who's not a son of David, but the son of David. Blind Bartimaeus, just a couple weeks ago, remember he goes, Jesus, son of David, son of David. But Jesus is like, guys, you need to upgrade in what you believe about me. Because for most of you, even if you call me the son of David, all you're acknowledging there is that I am a human descendant of David, the Messiah. What you're failing to realize is that I am divine God and Lord of all. And it's not enough to say, I believe Jesus was a good teacher. There's nothing short of saying, I believe Jesus is Lord. And so Jesus draws them out. He says, hey, I got a question. He says in verse 35, as he taught in the temple, how did the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? They're like, well, yeah, he is the son of David. And Jesus says, but, but wait a minute, didn't David say in Psalm 110, which by the way, this verse that, David, that Jesus quotes is the most quoted verse from the Old Testament, in the New Testament. Psalm 110, and every Jew knew this verse because every time they got a new king, they would say this. The new king would sit in place of the former king. So when Solomon or whichever king sat down, they would say, the people would say, the Lord said to my Lord, and they would, they would think of this earthly king, Solomon, Rehoboam, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So, so they're thinking, you know, every king of Israel is, is, is my Lord, Right? But Jesus is going, no, 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 you got to think bigger than that. He says, David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies, put your enemies to free feet. David calls him his Lord. Then how can he be his son? If he's simply just a good guy, one of David's descendants, why would David call him Lord? Right? So this morning as we close, I want you to think about this. Do you believe Jesus is Lord? Because to confess that Jesus is Lord, number one, involves acknowledging his eternal deity. Jesus is God. Listen, if you're a Jehovah's Witness or you meet a Jehovah's Witness, they'll, they'll go, oh, I believe Jesus created us. I believe Jesus died on the cross. He's our Savior. And you can cut right to the chase and just say, do you worship Jesus and confess him as Lord? And they'll go, no. There's only one Lord. That's Jehovah. Well, that's the difference between heaven and hell, according to the Bible. Because the Bible says you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. 
and believe in your heart, ready, that God raised him from the dead, and then you'll be saved. If you have genuinely done that, I want to give you a little tip here. Do you know why you did that? Because God graciously called you. 1 Corinthians 12 says, no man can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So if somewhere in your life you began to realize Jesus is Lord and you believe in his deity and that he died and rose again and he's Lord, that was a work of grace. And as you have come to turn and trust in him, you're a Christian, right? There's no such a thing as a Christian who does not confess Jesus as Lord, right? But Jesus wanted there to be a clarification that simply, ready, calling him Lord does not make you a Christian. Jesus said, why would you call me Lord if you won't do what I say? So while he was on earth, he put out a very sober warning. He said, not everyone who calls me Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. The devil could call him Lord. He said, the people who will enter the kingdom of heaven are those who do the will of my Father. And the ones who only called him Lord, he said, I will say to you, depart from me, you who practice wickedness, right? So what I want you to think about is if you're a believer, if you're a born-again Christian, you've come to the point of realizing, I can't save myself. I believe that Jesus died and shed his blood and that by his grace, he has forgiven me. And now I am confessing him as my Lord. And if I confess him as my Lord, that means I'm learning to live under his lordship. Does that make sense? He didn't just die for us to say, here's some hell insurance, I'll get you later. The Bible says he died for us that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him. Now, let me be very clear here. Is anybody here got that down perfectly? Every day, Jesus is Lord in every area of your life, heart and soul, mind and strength. Anybody? Just come up here and start preaching because I need to sit down. So none of us, if you're a Christian, don't get bent out of shape going, oh, no, I had a bad thought, or I was mean to my kids, or I looked at a bad show. That doesn't mean Jesus is your, not your Lord. But if he's your Lord, then sinning should bother you. When a young man came to me, he said, can you pray for my mom? She loves the Lord. She's living with her boyfriend. I said, your mom doesn't love the Lord? He said, yes, she does. So he just told me she's living with her boyfriend. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? Two days later, he called me up. He goes, I thought about what you said. I think you're right. Because people who love the Lord are going to try to follow him. So understand this. Jesus is a tender Lord. He's not an angry tyrant who's going to beat you if you disobey him. But if you're a child of God, right, we're confessing him as Lord. And when we're not living that way, this is what we're doing, and this is what we should be doing. So he always invites us, recalculating, recalculating. What areas of my life need to come back up under the lordship of Christ? Is it my thought life? Is it my friends? Am I imbibing in too much alcohol, or am I using drugs? Is my sexuality being misused for my own pleasure? Am I so busy with my own preoccupation that Jesus isn't even on my screensaver? That doesn't mean you're not a Christian. But it means if you are, the Lord is saying, wait a minute. I'm Lord. 
And so I hope that you'll understand that the Christian walk is not about now that I'm perfect. It's a constant journey of daily doing some soul searching, having a time with the Lord and saying, Jesus, this area is hard. Would you help me to live under your lordship? Will you strengthen me? Will you stand by my side? Will you forgive me? Because I, I, I blew that one. I got good news for you. We have a wonderful Lord. I learned a gospel song years ago. A wonderful Savior is Jesus, my Lord. He takes all my burdens away. Amen? So if Jesus is not your Lord, you're not far from the kingdom of God. But if you die without that, if I was you, I wouldn't walk out of this building until I made my peace with Christ. But if he is your Lord, even if you drop the ball for months, maybe even years, Jesus says, all who come to me, I won't cast out. He began a good work, and maybe he's just waking you up and saying, come on now, my child, let me be your Lord. Let me lead you in paths of righteousness. I look forward to what God's doing, amen? I'm every, almost every day I hear about somebody's life who's being changed because you guys are ministering the gospel in the lives of others. Man, we got kids to raise, people to win, the lost to, to see saved, mission fields to go to. So let's just thank the Lord this morning that he is a wonderful Lord. Jesus, thank you that you came to earth and on that cross you bore our sins and prove that you're the son of God because you rose again in glorious power and you're coming again and that's our hope. Lord, I'll be the first one in line to say, forgive me, living in a, a comfortable American culture, I don't have to fear persecution, but I fear pleasure. I fear that the lukewarmness of passive Christianity could choke out the seed. So may you refresh us, may you embolden us, may you encourage us with your wonderful love May we go out of here with a fresh passion to love the Lord Jesus. Not because we have to, but because he first loved us. May the Spirit breathe life into your children. And may those who are lost come flocking to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.